a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Shivani Gopal is the founder of The Remarkable Woman, an organisation dedicated to closing the gender pay gap. She's actually a financial planner by profession, which makes her a rare creature because there are very few women who go into financial planning, even though it's an area where there's huge demand for advice for women. Yeah, that's right. She's also the product of conservative Indian Fijian parents. And in fact, they arranged a marriage for her with her very first boyfriend when she was 18 years old. As so often happens, even with non-arranged marriages, it didn't work out well in the end. So she's since divorced her husband. And she has, as you were saying, Catherine, become an outspoken proponent of women's financial independence, not least because, of course, it gives you the ability to leave a miserable situation like an unhappy marriage. Welcome, Shivani. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm fascinated to ask you, you grew up in Sydney? I grew up in Sydney. I was born in Fiji and I was brought here when I was one. So I'm very much a Sydney sider. What's it like trying to straddle two cultures, particularly as a teenager? I used to say it's like having a mirror with two reflections. Uh, Another way would be having a hybrid life and a hybrid personality. And it was really interesting because you'd play this fun game of who I'm going to be today. And if anything, you know, the way that you would talk to people and the accents that you would put on as well would be very different. So at home, even when I'd speak in English, I'd have a very strong Indian accent because I just knew that I was going to break into Hindi at any point. Um, And when I was outside of the house, you, you couldn't sense any hint of it because I knew that I wasn't going to do so. But it also said a lot about what was happening in the back of my mind as well. So at home, it was, you know, a very strong maternal house, but within an even stronger patriarchal culture. Indian culture is uh, deeply ingrained in in its patriarchy. And the interesting thing, uh, as I realise, as we all do when we get older, is Western culture is too. It's Mm -hmm. just it's in the shadows, right? And and we, uh, we don't tend to see it for what it is as clearly. So at home, I was the Indian girl. And when I went out, I was the, you know, uh, patriotic Australian girl who wanted to have and do everything that my girlfriends did growing up. Shivani, tell me a little bit about when you started to uh, have an awareness about unfairness between men and women in a more general sense, but also around money. Yeah, I started to get an awareness from I guess, the moment that I could talk and the moment that I could clearly comprehend things. In Hindi, there is a term called ladki jat and a translation of that would be girl caste. And I used to hear so often that I couldn't do something because I was a ladki jat. And, you know, a, a very hilarious example that I would give you was, you know, being young, eating ice cream like a slob that uh, that my inner personality is when I'm at home and no one's and no one's around. And and so my legs will be sprawled everywhere. And the comment was, because you're a ladki jat, you can't sit like that. And then it just got more and more and more apparent. Because I was a Lurki Jath, I couldn't go out to the movies. Because I was a Lurki Jath, I couldn't have a boyfriend. Because I was a Lurki Jath, I needed to be really good at housework and really good at 
cooking and, and funnily enough, I love to bake, but I'm going to do it for me, not because I need to impress a mother-in-law or a boyfriend or a husband. So I started to get very aware of these things very early in life. And before I even put my mind to it consciously, I became a crusader for women and girls because I used, and I remember I'd just bunch myself up and I'd say, you can't tell me that I can't do that because I'm a girl and because boys can do it, I can do it too. And I should be able to. And my parents would, would, find me hilarious, actually. So they would sort of, you know, kick up and, and start laughing and be like, oh, this girl's going to be a lawyer. She can really argue. And, <laughs> uh, and also I didn't end up being a lawyer, but I did end up using my voice to give myself agency and so many women around me, you know, agency through through lending them my voice as did well. Did you get pocket money when you were a kid? I did. And, and the funny thing about money is money was never unequal. And I, I talk about norms a lot in the work that I do. And I find that, you know, whether we're conscious of it or not, we are a product of the norms and the environments of which we're brought up in. And for me, my norm was seeing mum and dad both work equally as hard as each other. Mum and dad both do the housework, both do the cooking because they were both constantly working. And also, um, you know, mum, you know, bringing in money and both of them not so much giving me pocket money. In fact, what I did do, I worked in the restaurants that my parents owned and I'd get five bucks a shift. So five bucks a night, you know, five hours worth of work. But it was um, it was my money and I got to save that. And it taught me very early on the value of money. And do you have siblings? But then the reason I'm asking you about pocket money and siblings is that we know, statistically speaking, that boys get paid more pocket money than girls on average uh, in Australia and a number of other countries. So we actually know that this starts from well before you're anywhere near a formal workplace. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, in my case, I, I've grown up around so many girls. So I actually didn't start to see that until I actually entered the workforce. So I'm the youngest of three daughters and I got the least amount of pocket money based on my age. And I also back then <laughs> thought it was fair. outrageous yeah, because I did work. the same amount of work. So I was talking about, you know, unequal pay, but not so much on the gendered side, but just around output. And, uh, and the theory still, you know, still follows. And back to your point about Western culture being a patriarchy, it's just a bit shadowy. It's really interesting the examples you were giving us of, what is it, Ladi? Ladi Ladi, you say it, I can't say it. Um, <laughs> that, I, it. I kept ringing my mind when I was told to be ladylike. Yes. It's a very, very similar kind of, you know, sit with your legs closed, you know, all those kinds of uh, injunctions that Western girls hear constantly about being ladylike. Um, which basically stops us being who we really are. Oh, yes, too. the same kind of strictures. Yeah. And I was brought up by nuns and it was exactly the same kind of thing. Um, take us a little bit further forward in your life. Um, so you were married relatively young uh, in yeah. age. Um, how did that come about? I, I had a boyfriend and I, I thought the world of him. And we had a, you know, at least in hindsight, I can laugh about it, a rather hilarious encounter with an auntie and uncle where we were going up the escalators and they were going down the escalators oh. and our eyes met and it was just this slow motion moment of horror. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, my life's over. Sprung. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Indian So network, this was a secret boyfriend. Oh, it was very much a secret boyfriend. You don't tell your parents about the boyfriends. Uh, that's changed a lot now. Uh, I'm 33 years old now and, and I'm very pleased to say that I can see my cousins and, you know, the, the Indian community are far more switched on and, and practical about these things. Uh, but at the time, the Indian network worked really fast. My parents found out about it. And there was a great level of shame, at least then, 
there still is to a degree, but again, parents are being a bit better about it, uh, around having a boyfriend. And so a lot of digging was done and they found out that, hey, he actually comes from a really wonderful Indian family as well. So I've just happened happened to come across a good Indian boy and and, and the marriage should occur. And, uh, you know, both families met and I kind of thought it was, oh, great, this is a systemic way of getting approval to have a boyfriend. That That's cool. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, but instead, when the doors opened and we went in, there was this horseshoe-like um, seating arrangement in their lounge room. And of course, I had been to his parents' house many a time when these parents weren't home. And I knew what the furniture arrangement was like and it wasn't like that. So it was all set up, you know, purposely and our marriage was arranged and it was discussed that we were going to be married. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, my life is has changed forever. And the independent woman in me, the one who, you know, from the age of, you know, 12, well before I was supposed to be working, you know, always saved her money and, and had a great level of pride in, in work ethic and, and having some level of financial independence started thinking, well, how am I going to fast track my future? How am I going to support myself financially? Because I can't possibly, in my norm, it was unfathomable to rely on him financially. So how was I going to fix that for myself? And um, so I, I had to replan my life. And uh, In an instant? In an instant, yes. In, in my head, I was sitting there going, how am I going to do this? And it was a very scary time of my life. It was a very lonely time of my life because in in one way, I got it really good. You know, a lot of arranged marriages in my culture happen to absolute strangers. For me, it was my high school boyfriend. So I was actually one of the lucky ones. And um, and in other ways, you know, all my girlfriends were going off to university and, um, and uh, hanging out at bars and, and, you know, being really carefree or going to Europe. And uh, And I was, you know, instead living with his parents and and feeling, you know, incredibly judged for, for every decision that I made because in my heart of hearts, I've always been an incredibly ambitious woman and uh, and I didn't feel as though I had the ability to spread my wings and be me and, and proudly embrace the ambitions that I had. So were you able to continue your education after you got married? Is yeah, that what happened? Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's more the nuances that occur and, and this is what I mean by, you know, being being ladylike or, or having a or being, you know, being or acting in the confines of Loki Jath and the patriarchy that lives in the shadows, you're still allowed to do all these things, right? You're allowed to do all of these things. So, of course, I was allowed to study, but the expectation was that my my husband leaves for work at nine o'clock. I also leave for work at nine o'clock. I was still doing my master's by the time I got married. Uh, so by the time I got married, I was 20. We had a confirmation ceremony at 18 and then the marriage happened a little bit later. So I'm studying and I'm, I'm working full time, but because I'm a woman and I need to behave in that ladylike kind of way, I had to wake up and make his breakfast. I had to wake up and iron his shirt. Um, I had to wake up a little bit early so I could get a bit of studying in. I'd get to work. I'd come home. I needed to make him a cup of tea when he was ready from home. I needed to get dinner on and then I'd probably stay up till midnight and, and keep studying for my master's. So yes, I was still allowed to do all those things, but I had to do so much more. You had to still fulfil your role right. in a very traditional sense That's as well. Right. So tell me, um, this must have been an extra motivation for you to look at the whole area of financial planning <laughs> and particularly for yeah. women. I mean, it's and it's certainly not just people who face some of those very strong cultural barriers to earning a living and being financially independent. We know it's still a big inhibitor for women generally. It really is. 
and it manifests itself in so many areas um, of our lives. I find that, you know, financial independence is your life raft uh, for the freedom of making the right choices that will serve you well. If you have money, you have choices. You have choice. You have agency, don't you? You have confidence. You have freedom. And I used to see the impacts of that, the negative impacts of that at the very coalface because when I became a financial advisor, I, uh, I, was, I was in an area where there was a lot of business people. I was in a, in, in a, in a very busy CBD district and I would see some incredibly successful men and women and I would actually meet women and men on the same day, funnily enough, from the same company uh, in very similar roles and the woman would be earning $100,000 less than men. And I could see it happening where women would earn so much less, especially in their bonuses. And of course, I know that, you know, the um, Wijaya Women um, General Quality Agency talks about this a lot. Women earn so much less, not just in their base salaries, but also in the discretionary pay. And it made me realise that you, you're not just paid your worth because you're, you're worth it. You need to be able to negotiate it. You need to be able to articulate what your worth is. And, um, and I could see that women were really suffering from not being, not putting themselves out there because again, we're cultured. But of course, it's not just about women. Um, it's about systems and the way we assess and value what women are doing in workplaces, isn't it? Because one of the things as the author of Stop Fixing Women that I find very frustrating around this debate is that we somehow say, to women who end up impoverished in retirement um, with less than half the superannuation savings of men, et cetera, Um, if you were just more financially literate. That's not going to do it though, is it? No, Uh, If we have workplaces that continue to assess women differently, um, prevent them being promoted and so on. There's a whole lot of systemic stuff that also has to be looked at by men. Yes, absolutely. Especially when the key decision makers by and large are men. Are men. And, you know, women are being punished for being feminine leaders and they're being punished for being, you know, male-like leaders. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no right way to do it, is there? Can't no. win that one. No, yeah. no, there isn't. And, and you know, to your point around superannuation, again, I'd, I'd see that because there's a lot of talk around, you know, superannuation and women having, you know, less than half of, uh, of men's superannuation. You go, okay, there are contributing factors that and people say, well, you know, women take time off work for children. But hang on a second, their 9.5% is calculated on around 21 or 17% less than what men are. So it's, it, it is incredibly systemic. And I would see that in the office as a, as a financial advisor. And it got me incredibly frustrated because you just see it happen over and over again. And there's incredibly smart and capable women not being paid their worth. And, and you're very right. It's, it's, um, it, it's a system thing. And I could just see that they were worth so much more. Mm. So what happened after the, uh, while this was happening, while yes. you were building a career uh, yes. in financial uh, planning and so on, what was happening with your marriage? It was, it was really interesting in the sense that I, I guess I just buried myself in work because I didn't feel as though I could be my whole self, my, I'm an ambitious woman, Shivani, and there's nothing wrong with that self um, in my, in my private life. And I felt I had to hide a lot of that. So the, the marriage was crumbling and I found it really difficult to be able to express why I was so unhappy because in Indian culture, 
you not only get married for life, you get married for seven lifetimes. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, uh, so it's a very long time because, of course, you know, reincarnation is a big part of Hinduism. And if you are going to leave, then of course, I mean, the community is very supportive if if there was infidelity or if there was abuse. But if there's none of that, if your husband just happens to be a really wonderful guy who's just really different to you. Doesn't suit you. That's right. And you are realising that you're becoming a woman um, that is entirely different. It wants to lead an entirely different life path to this person here. But also that you're finding the very strong patriarchal family of his stifling, um, there's not much that you can, you know, do about that. And you can't really say to your family, this is why I want to leave. So I I found myself very alone. Um, there were times that I actually thought I, I, I might need to leave the country to escape the shame of divorce. And, uh, and there was also no friends of mine at the time that had ever gotten divorced. And to set some context, when I had gotten married, so by the time I had gotten married, I was 20. To set some context, at that wedding, There were so many people um, congratulating my parents on getting their daughter married at the right age and that they had done well because by extension what they're saying is if you get your daughter married young, she can't really make any mistakes. She can't really shame the family by having a whole long... You've safely contained her. Exactly. And and it's so limiting, isn't it, um, that my worth can be defined by how many boyfriends I have or my success can be... can be defined by that. And also the trouble you don't cause your parents. Yes, absolutely. So in my community now, I, I've i almost become a saviour for, for young girls. And I don't actually mind this at all. In fact, I, I think, you know, if anything, when someone says something to you, you'll take offence based on intent or outcome. Um, and so for this, I'm really happy because the outcome's really good. People will say to young girls, we don't want you to get married really young because we don't want what happened to Shivani to happen to you. And I'm totally fine with that. So you've become an awful <laughs> warning. I have. But it means that. The Shivani effect. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, the Shivani effect. And I'm so okay with that because it means that young girls have the freedom to say, I'm going to have a boyfriend and it's okay. And I need to be given the time and the space to see through that relationship to see if it's right for me. And if it's wrong, that's totally fine. So still the stigma of a divorce uh, without, as you say, you know, anything which was um, seen as a moral failing on the part of your husband, um, is that pervasive even to this day in your community and still around you? How have your parents coped with that? Have they come to terms with it? What's their position now? So I've, of course, remarried since and uh, I've married a um, an, an Australian man who's, a, you know, probably just as strong as a feminist as I am, and, and they adore him to bits and pieces. However, back at the time that we were going through this, it was incredibly difficult for them because their reality, their norm is you don't get divorced and no one in the community had ever gotten divorced. So, yes, it, there is still a huge amount of stigma that is attached to that, but what the community I feel are now doing is they're going, well, what we need to do, what we learn from this is we don't rush our daughters into marriage or our sons, for that matter, into marriage. We just need to let them see through the course of their their relationships and let them make their own decisions. At the time, for them, it was very much, you know, how am I going to face society with with you leaving a marriage that on, on the surface, there's nothing really wrong in, in that marriage. I mean, to his credit, he's, he's an absolute sweetheart and I'm sure he still is. Um, so why do you leave a really good man? And so they found that really difficult because they had no response.
what was it, do you think, that gave you the strength of character, the sense of self that enabled you to do such a radical thing as say, I can't bear living this way and I'm going to change it? Because I don't think that that's just something... I mean, I think you were quoting a statistic earlier, Catherine, that... Um, um, the, some research done by the Sydney Community Foundation of Sydney Women found something like over 80% of women said they were quite happy where they lived, but they weren't... Only 50% were happy with who they lived with. Yes. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Which is a little sobering. A little sobering. Yeah. Well, but what that's basically saying is there's a whole lot of women out there from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, including those that may not have nearly the same uh, stigma around divorce, who couldn't find the courage to do what you've done. What was it? What do you think in your childhood, in your, what is it? Where did that come from? There was a a couple of realisations for me and one of them was a drunken conversation actually that I had. Alcohol is very helpful. It's very helpful. It's, yeah, it helps take away some of those inhibitions, right? And you just sort of spit things out and you go, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, And that happened for me. Um, Plus I'm a horrible lightweight. So it's, it's, uh, I I tend, I probably got there far too quickly at that time. But um, a girlfriend of mine um, had said to me, you know, the throwaway line, well, life is too short. And I responded, actually, no, life is really long when you're unhappy. And, she, I just remember, and I wouldn't have even remembered that I had said that if it wasn't for the look on her face. And she just literally stepped right back and, and she just went, are you okay? And that's what made me think, because you tend to make peace with your life, right? Yeah. You sort of go, well, you know Put what? Up with it. I'm doing my master's and I've got this great job and I finally succeeded at it. And, you know, we had built some investments together. And so you start to synthesize happiness. And I was synthesizing happiness really heavily. And so it took that drunken moment for me to just, you know, come out and say, actually, life is really long when you're unhappy. And it made me go, oh, goodness, I, I really am unhappy and I should probably do something about this. The, the next um, for me was my, my grandfather's funeral, which made me really appreciate the risk that my parents took to give me the life that I had. And because I, I've had an incredibly loving childhood really loving parents who just accepted the patriarchal culture because that's all they knew. Um, and so I, I was at his funeral, uh, my grandfather's funeral, and my father was there and my sister was there and it was pouring down rain. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all of these eulogies. And it was at that point that I realised that my parents were the only ones that migrated to Australia on business visas And as a result, out of all their brothers and sisters, and as a result, I had the privilege of an Australian education, an Australian upbringing, of an Australian ideology, of the global ideology that I have the absolute privilege of having. And my antennas went up and I thought, oh, goodness, what about my auntie, my uncle? And I realised, hang on a second, I was too young to care or to pay attention, but they actually had come to Australia much, much later in life. My cousins had already been schooled in Fiji. So my parents' landing point, landing in Australia, and they had a really successful business in Fiji. They were they were incredibly fortunate and it was so rare for them to do well in the economic environment that was, that was then Fiji. Um, and so they took that risk and they did it for the sake of our education. And, so, and as my mum tells me constantly, for the sake of our future. Right. And so where they landed was my starting point. And I thought, well, I've been given that privilege. What am I going to do with that life? Because I'm clearly worth it. And it gave me a sense of worthiness. And that sense of worthiness 
showed me that even if I don't have the courage, I better move forward. And I need to, and so my mantra now is action cures fear. And so I almost just take one step forward and one step forward and one step forward. And before you know what I'm running. And I spent a lot of time digging deep on my sense of values and what I really appreciated of myself and other people, which is why I, I, I do a, a daily practice now. And if I if time gets busy, then I do it weekly where I reflect on the day that was or the week that was, what worked well, what didn't work well, um, how did I really serve me? Um, and as a result of a lot of that work, I came up with a set of values and being fearless, being worthy, um, contributing, they were some really strong values of mine. And I realized that I couldn't do any of those things until I was serving me first. Can I ask you um, on, a, on a really practical, um, relevant, I think, aspect of that, you then, you went through a divorce um, and these things can be absolutely debilitating, particularly for women. Now, I'm talking in general terms, uh, financially debilitating, um, not in every case, but certainly overall. What did you learn from that? And what are you able to tell other women about that whole process? Because unhappiness doesn't appear overnight. Often it is built up over a long time. Are there things that you can tell women about really making sure that they come out of something as a major upheaval, like a divorce, uh, without being a, it being a financial disaster for them. Yeah, and and unfortunately, it does end up being a financial disaster, especially for women. Um, you know, when when assets are split, you know, and superannuation impacts and and all that sort of stuff, as well. So, so for me, um, it was my financial independence that. I credit as my life raft for for the divorce and for the realisation that I could stand up on my own two feet. So I'll answer that in two parts if I can. Um, the, the first was me doing a really crazy cry to a girlfriend and telling her all the reasons why I didn't think I could leave and all the reasons why I felt stuck and then sort of supporting that with some synthesis of happiness. And she decided to tell me the one problem that I had forgotten about. <laughs> Just, you know, so I could do the, my checks and balances. And, um, and, she said, and she said exactly that. She said, don't forget, Shivani, that um, you're going to be financially destitute. You, you're not going to have any money. And that's when I sort of just sucked it all up and went, oh, that's not a problem at all. I've got my own money. That's, that's actually fine. And that's when I remembered, hang on a second, I've got this one thing that I can rely on. Even if I walked away with absolutely nothing, I've got a really strong income. I could support myself. I can support my my own rent and I can save and I can do all those things. Even if I walked away with absolutely nothing, I've got my education, I've got my income. So um, that gave me a huge amount of confidence. And for me, the, the knowledge equaled money, equaled power. And, and so for women, my advice is get the knowledge that will give you the power to have the money. So I, I spoke to a number of different legal professionals. I really did my research around that. I got really aware of my rights. And this is going to sound really strange, but um, you know the whole theory of energy and space where if you want to be really productive, some people go to a cafe and they're just, you know, they're able to punch out an article and they're doing it because they're in a different space. Tonality also does that for you. So what I did with my ex 
was, so it's literally as I'm speaking to you now, I mean, you have a professional voice and when you're at home, you sort of speak a little bit more freely and a little bit casually. And whenever I spoke to him about matters of money and, and we were talking about divorce, I just put on my professional voice. And what it did for me was psychologically helped me remove the emotion from the conversation. And it helped me say, okay, that's unacceptable. I get what you're saying, but this is the legal advice that I've been given. And so I think this is what's fair. And so the, the advice that I'd actually give women is go out, get the knowledge, find out, you know, what your rights are, find out um, about how much time you've taken on maternity leave and, uh, and you know, the support that you should be owed, especially through superannuation. Um, but once you've done that, give yourself a hack, a, a tool, a trick. And for me, it was a tonality trick that enables you to separate the emotion from the finances so that you're not hard done by. Mm. I've seen a lot of women, particularly of my generation, and I'm, you know, twice your age, uh, who have almost given the money away to kind of soothe their own guilt about ending the marriage. So they've yes. basically given up their e- e- economic independence because they've initiated the divorce and feel, therefore, that they don't deserve it. I've never actually seen it the other way around. No. Yeah. Which isn't and to say it, happens, it hasn't happened, but I've just never seen it. Yeah, that's all. And the advice I'd give to those women is I, I did this a lot and I still do it actually. Uh, and I write it in my favourite lipstick too, so I, so I kind of sacrifice something to put it there. Um, write I am worthy mm. on your mirror in your favourite lipstick. I found that so fascinating when you basically said that because your parents were prepared to take that huge leap into the dark to come to Australia to set up, to leave a successful business, so to risk setting up another one for you and your sister's future. Yes. You, there were two, it struck me there were two things that came out of that. The first was this I feel worthy. Obviously I'm worth something because my parents were prepared to sacrifice so much for me. But also there's a model. There's a model of taking a big risk, a big leap into yes. the dark. They had done that and given you um, the permission really to do something radical because that's what they had done. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it, it's true and, uh, and and it's no it's no surprise that I've set up my own business as well mm. and people tend to say, oh, you know, it's so courageous. And for me, it's just, oh, my parents had businesses and it was, it was only, it was inevitable that one day I was going to have a business. But I, I, I hear this um, and, and I unfortunately can't remember who first said it, so we'll, we'll need to credit them eventually. Um, you're the average of the people you spend the most time with. And... So my parents said that average for me on it's okay to take risks, it's okay to set up your own business, you can do it, you can leap into the unknown. That's why the community is so important. And so for women who feel they're not worthy or they're feeling they're not in a space where they can go out and start their own business or have that chat with their their partner about, you know, their, their current living situation, go and find an average of people who are doing that and you'll find that simply by being around them, you'll just get either it's, you know, the, the courage of, of, of them, but you will become their average and you'll start to to change your behaviours and what's acceptable in your norms as a result of that. It's not and really a surprise, is it, when we talk about these things, though, because what we know now, for example, about the gender pay gap, um, it's about how much we value what women do. Yeah. Um, mm. And we do not value what women do in the same way as we value men. So when we tell women with the best intentions to get their negotiating skills going and ask for a pay rise, all of which they should do, that's only ever going to be part of that equation because what we know is across economies, areas have become feminised, the pay drops, 
areas that become masculinised, the pay rises. So we value that differently. What I'm really interested in is what do you think is happening with younger women now? Because I get a very different sense from them. I think they do understand their value uh, and I think they're more forthright. We know from research, for example, that Australian younger women are asking for pay rises. That old furphy you didn't put your hand up is rubbish. Mm. They still get them 25% less often than their male peers. So, again, still asking. yeah, but they are asking. Are you getting a strong sort of sense of optimism? Because I certainly, I have three daughters, Jane has two. I think they're pretty savvy. Yeah, and I see this a lot in, in, in the organisation that I run, The Remarkable Woman, because, yes, their young women are really savvy. They're incredibly educated. In fact, we have more female graduates as well at a university level. So it's, you know, it's wonderful and they're confident and they're skilled and they do come in, you know, knowing that they're worthy and feeling really comfortable in asking for their worth, but also they've been socialised in a really equal manner. So a lot of them are actually saying to me, I, I don't really think a, you know, a gender pay gap exists. I don't really think we've got this inequality issue. However, until they run into it. Yes. Yeah. What tends to happen and, and what, I, what I see is, yeah, so they're going through this newbie stage in, in terms of the workforce. As they get through, you know, their, their first couple of roles, I tend to find that's when the disenchantment starts to set in and they start to hit the first roadblocks of the glass ceiling, um, of the so-called meritocracy as well, which I know you've, you know, you've written a lot about. And, um, and, I, and I think that that's when, you know, the, the realisation, the frustration sets in and, and that's when they sort of go, hang on a second, I, um, you know, th- there are systematic issues around it. And but are they taking become- their financial futures um, seriously? Because the, the other um, feedback I've been having, um, that a lot of uh, younger, well-educated, um, reasonably high-earning women are in fact investing in property, that there is much more interest and demand from younger women than there has been in the past for that kind of uh, advice. Yeah, they, they are and they they are and they aren't. The, the, the common saying that I have is everyone is an expert in the field in which they invest the most time in. And so I and, and I can say this through, you know, even my experience when I was a financial advisor, you'd meet some incredibly intelligent people and they would, you know, I, I'd have doctors who um, had no idea um, on how to manage their money and, and not because they weren't intelligent or capable. I mean, of course they are. They simply didn't have the time nor did they invest it in, in, in the management of their finances. And the other thing that is is really high on the rise right now is, you know, snippets of information or Instagram and none of these things really serve the the knowledge and, uh, and you know, the capability set of how to manage your finances. And so what ends up happening is popular forms of, of of money management. So for example, um, you know, Spaceship Super or something like that, everyone's going, oh, this is so amazing. Whereas in fact, if you sort of boil that down, you can say, well, actually they invest in, you know, many index funds. They've only got, you know, a small percentage of, of tech stocks, for example. But if you went on the headline, you'd go, oh, that's great. There's all these tech stocks. And if I, so if I went off the Instagram version of it, I'm not really educating myself financially. So, um, so there's a lot more interest what I think now needs to become a lot more accessible for women um, and men, actually, who, who don't specialise in money is just really easy to digest, easy to understand, practical tips on how to how to manage your money and just start in, um, in ways that will give you discipline and structure, you know, separating your you know, saving before you start spending money and, and putting money away for your bills and making sure that you pay your mortgage weekly if you get paid weekly. You know, these small things make a huge amount of difference. So, the, the, you know, the, the knowledge index, I guess, is, is high on stuff that really 
are, are more populist but don't really impact you or benefit you. The the knowledge on, on this, the fundamentals are still needing to be improved. Do you think that younger women are finally throwing off, I think, the thing that really held back our generation, this idea that there's something fundamentally unfeminine about being interested in money, understanding money, and almost something cold and calculating that women are meant to be, you know, kind of spontaneous, warm-hearted, nurturing creatures who don't uh, therefore... Uh, think in a kind of cold, masculine way about financial things. I mean, I'm really hopeful that we've, um, you know, started to chip away at that. But I certainly know for women of my generation, many of whom now, I mean, yes, on average women retire with half the super of men, but fully one-third of women retire with no super at all, Mm. which leaves them in a devastating situation. And often what they've done is what they were told to do, which is to put love first and forget about money, and they've ended up with no love and no bloody money either, um, and it's a tragedy for them. Has that message gotten through? I mean, the very fact that some young women are saying to you, I don't see a difficulty, there is no gender gay pay gap, is frightening to me. Mm. Yeah, it it really is. It's interesting that you should put it that way, and I, I think one of the reasons for you know, the the cold perception of money is also that the traditional money manages the men. Mm -hmm. And so... Men's business. That's right. And also the people who've been creating the content that you could consume around money have also been men. And so what we need to see is a rise of women writing about money that is is just genuine and relatable and, and also ungenders money because women don't really... I mean, I now I'm sounding gendered, but look, I do love spending my money on shoes, but I even more so love being ahead in my mortgage payments. Yeah. You know, so so I think it's about being practical and, and being relatable and, and that part is missing. So I think what, what the issue is around that is that we're just being um, nurtured financially by men and men talking to other men. And so we need to be women talking to other women. Sort of break that circuit. That's right. That's right. Staying on the theme of younger women for a minute, go back to when you were that 18-year-old who's suddenly confronted with the horseshoe of uh, parents who think they've had a really great idea and you start to recast your life immediately when you're told you're about to get married. Now, from the position you're in, what would your advice be to that girl? If I could genuinely, it's a a hard question because I know I can't go back in time and I I wouldn't change anything about my life because it's made me the woman that I am today and the challenges have defined me as much as the successes have. In fact, the challenges have probably defined me even more. However, what I would say to myself is to be kinder to yourself to talk about your ambitions, not be afraid of them, to share them, and to be really clear on what it is that you want. There's no shame in a woman being assertive and articulate, and I think you can certainly be both warm and authoritative, and there's nothing wrong with being both, um, and there's nothing unfeminine about that. So I, I, I think I would say to myself, embrace your individuality, embrace your sense of voice and speak up because it matters to you. And the thing that you're going to regret most is 
not pursuing your dreams, not pursuing your ambitions and your goals, more so than the stuff that you do do and the stuff that you end up stuffing up. (laughs) That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you, Shivani. Thanks so much. Thank you, Shivani. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 